This is finally that, that chance where one member, one vote comes into play. So it changes the entire structure of how things happen because now the situation is we nominate this convention and then there's a ballot mailed to every member's home and then they vote upon it. I missed the, the yesteryear fun convention, but I think going forward, especially for where we're at with the corruption, this is needed and will be better going forward. It's being led by young people and their teens, early 20s, some in their 30s, who have a sense of hopelessness about the economic world we live in, and this is giving them a sense of hope. I think much like the 1930s, when young manufacturing workers created the unions in manufacturing. The point of America is to obliterate class as a lived condition, which it did. So we could talk about class in an American context, but that's not describing its lived experience. So we're just, we're the people. This idea that was not, you could not sustain in Europe, the cheek to jowl in those little principalities, where land was at a premium. You could sustain that fantasy, that fiction, that social belief in America. Welcome to this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm your host, Mel Smith, from the LRP Network, an international group of over 130 shows bringing the latest and greatest from the labor movement. This week, you could say this episode is a little bit conventional, as we start with hearing from the 2022 United Auto Workers Constitutional Convention in Detroit. First, on My Labor Radio, Mark Gavart gets into the weeds of this year's convention to better explain the recent changes to the election process and more. Then, on site, we hear from the Trucked Up podcast, where members from the local 2209 and 14 discuss the different feel this convention has had compared to past years. Moving east, we hear from Richard Bensinger, who met with AFT in action at Connecticut's AFL-CIO convention. Richard talks about his involvement in the Starbucks unionization movement and how the workers got their initial momentum to begin organizing. Lastly, taking a break from conventions, author Matt Chrisman joins The Dig to explain how the United States history has led to our present economic situation. Once again, this is Mel Smith, and here are our shows. Hey, and welcome to the Labor Vision Podcast. I am your host, James Dennis, and my other host is Charles Daniels. What's up, Charles? Hello, hello. How you doing today, man? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Beautiful day to be in the labor game. Very excited to be here because we have an extremely special guest. He's come to visit us here in Detroit City. Yes. Been on the show before from My Labor Radio, Mr. Mark of Art. Aw, thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Oh, no. Yeah. You did yeah. that to me the last time, too. I got a hell no on my intro. Okay. So no. now okay. you just trolling us. Look, totally look, works. look, look, here we go. Here we go. Hell no. <laughs> but we need this one. Right. I feel whatever she told me, I would do whatever she said. <laughs> so you like I hell no. Right, right. I'm okay with that. That's a great introduction. You know what? I like I love that support. Yeah, I'm a United Auto Workers member, and I told these guys, I'm telling these listeners, I'm talking to the listeners right now. I said, hey guys, I'm in your neighborhood. I'm gonna be in downtown Detroit. You gotta be on the show. And here I am. Thank yep, you very yep. much, guys. Now, y'all got some some stuff going on down there, right, at this convention. Yeah. There's some outside stuff that's happened. That's, so what, what happened was, it's it's I was a character issue, and we talked about this off before we even started. Characters are, it's about your character. Do you have character? You're a president. You know what that is. It, sure. You are held to a standard that you must do. You have to have the character in yourself. Right. How'd your mom and dad, how'd your grandma raise you? You know, think about that. And what's important to that is that the government now is involved 
not going to talk about how it got there, but they are there. They're involved. And they found 17 people that they indicted. They're working on 18 and 19 right now. So wow. those folks were finding, you know, I can take this. Oh, I can take that. No one knows this. So um, good internal motions that changed all that. But what the government forced upon the system was a one-member, one-vote system. So the Administrative Caucus, who's currently in charge, that's their title or name, and then there's this dissident group of folks who jumped on the bandwagon who have been outspoken for their entire... I've been around for 40 years now, and in that time, they have been very outspoken and said, hey, I want this and we want that, and they really don't get on... They can't get on board because the Administrative Caucus has this... I always call it the train going down the track. You're either riding on the train or you're waving at it as it goes by. Wow. And they've been waving at it as it goes by. This is finally that, that chance where one member, one vote comes into play. So it changes the entire structure of how things happen. Because in the four days of convention, in the past, you had people come forward. They're nominated. They're voted upon right there at that moment, voice vote or count vote, however they did it. Based on that, that person's the regional director, they're the vice president at Stellantis or, you know, agricultural implement workers, however right. it was, that's the group that they took on. There's your president, your secretary treasurer, that all happened within there. Now the situation is we nominate this convention and then there's a ballot mailed to every member's home and ah. then they vote upon. So in this case, how do you know as a member sitting in Waterloo, Iowa or Kansas City, Missouri, what these people are, who are, who's this secretary treasurer? Right. So part of what myself and my local home local, they sent some podcasters here too, is to interview delegates who are here and try and get as many leadership people as we can while they're here in one place. We're still going to try and do some Zoom calls over the month of August, but hey guys, tell us your story. Give us your elevator speech, as I always call it, in three minutes. You ask the candidate that all the time. Give me your speech, baby. Tell me how you get from here to here in three minutes. And right. you got to have a speech. If you're going to be in that position, you know, Charles, you're out there selling your shop and say, I'm going to get elected. You've got to get there right. by having that elevator speech. And so we're just going to try in middle of the road, Say, hey, this is what these people, they're, they're united. United All Workers for Democracy is the outside group versus okay. the administrative caucus. Now, I say versus, we're still all brothers and sisters in this together. It's The, the versus is based on opinion. Gotcha. We think they should do this. The administrative caucus says we're going to do this. Right. So they have resolutions. Their outside group, this UAWD group, has resolutions but they just verified the resolutions here in June and early July. They never got them through the system, which brought them to the regional office, which then brought them to Solidarity House in downtown Detroit, where they sat through, looked at them, said, okay, there are six resolutions with that in mind. Let's put a hybrid together as the best one. And then the resolutions committee will bring that forward to the floor. People right. vote upon that at the convention. What's crazy is these guys came forward and said, hey, we got all these resolutions, and they're down to eight, and they're, they make sense, but they missed the boat because they didn't come in in time to have the International Union look at them. So they're not saying, the International Union is not saying, hey, that's out of order. It's going to have to come to the floor. It's going to have to be a voice vote. Wow. You got 900 delegates. How do you think that's going to go? That's going to get real interesting. Is, hey, my brother, thank you for coming on the show. We really, really appreciate you. You guys know how you got hospitality in ACES. You guys know what you're doing. <laughs> Thanks, brother. <laughs> we try. We try. All right. Remember, Labor Vision is the official podcast of the Michigan State AFL-CIO. Charles, I guess until next week, we're back again. Sounds good. All right. Hey, everybody, be safe out there, and thank you for everything. Peace out. I missed the 
the yesteryear fun convention, but I think going forward, especially for where we're at with the corruption, this is needed and will be better going forward. Welcome, everyone. This is Michael Scott here with the Trucked Up Podcast, Local 2209 Radio. I'm joined with Nelson Rodriguez, and then we have uh, a couple of special guests here from Local 14. I'll just have you guys introduce yourselves. Hi, my name's Tony Toddy, and I'm the president of UAW Local 14. And my name is Brian Van Pelt. I'm, I am the education director for the powertrain unit at Local 14. Man, this convention has been pretty wild. My <laughs> yeah. head, every day my head is just swollen and hurting, pulsating. Uh-huh. I take mm-hmm. my migraine medicine every night before I go to bed or else yeah. I can't. This convention has been amazing. I, I was, know it's new. We're all new. Right. Yeah. I was talking to uh, Mark Gavart, former Local 2209 president, and uh, I told him, I'm like, this is like, basic training for robert's rules of order <laughs> isn't it there's though? so much going on and it, i'm learning just with the process so much yeah it's robert's Definitely. rules on steroids on steroids <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah because if you've been to a convention like i've been to a convention before where we were looking around for a parliamentarian because they were like okay so we don't know how this is supposed to work a parliamentarian in the house yeah it, this one we're going to a better place. Unfortunately, what brought us here was the corruption. We can't duck that. We can't hide that. But they used to be more festive because it was like a coronation of our leaders. And we were all happy about it. The day today would have been where you decorate the hall with the, the different regions would have balloons up in their colors and, okay. and everything else. And when you walked away from this convention before... You knew who your leaders were, and that's exciting, and it's a big party, and then you throw a big party for the outgoing leaders. We don't have that now. We're going to have an election that's going to take many months, and we'll know who that is. It's just a different feel, but it's where we're at, and we need to embrace it and go forward. But it is very different than anything I've seen before. Coming into this, you hear all the stories about how the convention was previously run and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's totally different than what I expected. Like a lot of the games that were being played before that I've only heard of. But seeing it now, it's so much well-balanced. And hearing our members, even if they lose, hearing the conversation amongst each other and the debate, it's amazing. It's great. And it's great seeing that. So it's uplifting because you hear the rumors. And then you come here, and yeah, it hurts my head. But it's still because... <laughs> right you got so many lo- all our locals are there we're all there and we get to hear each other yeah. and it's great and hopefully people are listening right because yeah. here at this table it's all gm but mm-hmm. then when you go over there you have every facet that we cover you have so we talk to uh, ips you have freightline truck you have john deere's there every every facet that we cover in the uaw is all represented there and what you're really seeing now is region 9a right the teacher's assistants in the back with, with their thought out arguments it, it, even if we don't agree with them it's so interesting to see how vocal these new members are and they're exciting and they're excited and all that it's great to see that our system our democracy really come through and everybody's respectful for the most part and everybody's heard through our Roberts Rule of Order system. And it is different than before. Before you might say, hey, wh- what do you got to say, brother? And I objected. You cut the mic, right? <laughs> Nobody's mic's been cut. Everybody has a chance to speak as long as it's in order. And you see even a, a spirit of helping people guide through the process. Even if somebody's not correct, the council and walk them through. It's a better union. It's a better conference for that. I, I, I missed the the yesteryear fun convention, but I think going forward, especially for where we're at with the corruption, this is needed and will be better going forward. It's true because with the corruption, in my eyes, my view, 
it, it just it almost broke our union. But the only thing that solidified union keeps our union, the strength of our union is our core values. It's just the essence of what our union means. That's what keeps us. We can't, we can help our leaders. We, we get, get rid of some of them, put new ones in, or keep the ones that are of, of value. But we don't lose our union because of its core values and the solidarity we build within it. It's horrible that we have to do, deal with what we do. But being at this convention, it, it did help me to know, it did my soul to know that we're trying. <laughs> Even if we don't agree at times, we're trying. That we're going about it the right way, that we're doing, taking it a step at a time and just moving on from there. But as well, what Tony was saying was, we're helping the members who aren't sure about something, we're helping them and we lift them up. because. I don't know, in education, we always talk about when you lift one up, you lift them up, you lift everybody up. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate yeah, thank you. you. Yeah, I yeah, appreciate it. Very Thanks, good my brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, my brothers. Hey, everybody have a great day. It's being led by young people in their teens, early 20s, some in their 30s, who have a sense of hopelessness about the economic world we live in. And this is giving them a sense of hope. I think much like the 1930s, when young manufacturing workers created the unions in manufacturing. Welcome to AFT in Action, a podcast for members of AFT Connecticut affiliated local unions. Welcome sisters and brothers to another episode of AFT in Action. My name is Jan Hockadel, your state Fed president and your co-host for today's episode. Today, we will be discussing how we continue to build the labor movement at our AFT Connecticut business convention, at the Connecticut AFL-CIO convention, and then just a few weeks ago, at the AFT convention in Boston, the themes were all very similar, that we have to continue to grow our movement by organizing more working people. And to join our conversation today, we have a special guest, Richard Bensinger, who I had the privilege of meeting at the Connecticut AFL-CIO convention, where he and some of the Starbucks baristas shared their experience over the past year building Starbucks Workers United. They also joined the AFT National Convention to announce their successful Union Yes vote at the Vernon, Connecticut store. Richard is the founder of the Organizing Institute, previously an organizer with the International UAW, and previously the director of organizing for the National AFL-CIO. And he is serving as the advisor to Starbucks Workers United since the campaign launched last fall in Buffalo, New York. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Glad to be here. And thanks to the AFT for the opportunity. Can you share a little bit of how you got involved with organizing coffee labor in particular? Because it's one of those non-traditional type of groups that when people think of organizing, it doesn't necessarily come to mind at first. Yeah, I had a variety of organizing experiences in my career, public sector, building trades, private sector manufacturing. But I've always wanted to organize the restaurant industry, food service industry, particularly chains. But I had a hard time finding the union interested in doing it. But I found somebody in upstate New York, a person named Gary Bonadonna, who is a new labor leader up there who had the courage to really fund the Starbucks campaign. But before that, there was Starbucks campaign was not really beginning. It was a coffee project in upstate New York where we organized one coffee chain in one city. And then we went to Buffalo where we organized spot coffee, eight different restaurants there. Workers were fired. Community got mad and boycotted. The company then signed the group of fair election principles. And with those principles with us, we were able to win an election of 93%, negotiated a great contract with immediate pay increase of an average of $4.50 an hour. And Starbucks workers heard about the spot contract and contacted us. This is all pre-pandemic. 
So that's how the coffee thing started. That's how Starbucks started is really through a sister project at Spot Coffee in Buffalo. Richard, I have to ask you, we mentioned that the coffee industry isn't the traditional industry we think of when organizing. So are there specific lessons that we can learn from this experience that would help us with our other, maybe more traditional organizing drives? The only thing really non-traditional about this is that it's an industry that the labor movement is not focused on. Otherwise, I don't, I, I think this is basic organizing that the AFT has done for years, the good organizers do, which is basically just building a good internal inside organizing committee. So at each store, so that the workers really own the campaign and can combat the type of vicious over-the-top anti-unionism that Mark is describing that Howard Schultz and Melody Hobson from Starbucks have, have put upon them. I think uh, this is a company that is as bad as anything I've ever seen, and maybe worse than anything I've ever seen. And there's nothing they won't do to try to stop the union. They've closed doors, they fire workers all over the country, like Mark was saying. So what overcomes that is, I think, two things, strong worker support. Um, but what also has to be done here at Spot Coffee, I explained earlier, we won because the workers were fired. The public boycotted the company. They came to the aid of the workers. And so I think there's no boycott at this point of Starbucks. But I think public support has been also very key for union members like AFT, having this at your convention, supporting the union, going by the stores, ordering union strong coffee is critical. And I think in the future, to get Howard Schultz really to come to the bargaining table, it's going to take that kind of public support. Just to follow up as well, it's something like over 200 stores have unionized now in like about a year. And it sounds like you have daily election counts that you're checking in on. Why do you think the movement has grown so strong and so quickly? I think it's part generational and part class. I think that it's economic inequality that we all know about that. And then it's that anybody works there, whether they're 60 years old or 16 years old, is experiencing the brutality of an unfair economic system and, and the greed of kind of billionaires like him, like Schultz and Hobson. I keep going back to them because they made their literally billions, yet they, like many companies, just don't share in the wealth. So that's why unions exist. And I think it's a generational uprising because this generation has a sense of, I mean, Mark can say, of hopelessness. It's come up. A lot of people on the Zoom calls we've done with workers around the country say, this is the first thing they've been hopeful of. It's being led by young people and their teens early 20s, some in the 30s, who have a sense of hopelessness about the economic world we live in. And this is giving them a sense of hope. I think much like the 1930s, when young manufacturing workers created the, the unions in manufacturing. I want to thank you, Richard, for joining us as guests today, for answering our questions, and really for leading the way to build a better future for all. Thanks for having us. Like what you heard? Then share with fellow members and encourage they give it a listen too and help build the power of the UNI in union. The point of America is to obliterate class as a lived condition, which it did. So we could talk about class in an American context, but that's not describing its lived experience. So we're just, we're the people. This idea that was not, you could not sustain in Europe, cheek to jowl in those little principalities where land was at a premium. You could sustain that fantasy, that fiction, that social belief in America. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's episode is my interview with Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House. Many of you are probably Chapo listeners and fans. 
Many others of you, I'm sure, are not, and perhaps only know Chapo by reputation. Whether or not you listen, this interview puts Matt's thinking into the DIG's extensive and exhaustive format. The result is a broad and comprehensive analysis of how American history brought us to this awful present from one of the sharpest and most entertaining thinkers around. Matt Chrisman, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you for having me. It's easy to overemphasize how weird things are getting because I think the past was far weirder at the time than we tend to remember it in retrospect. But Absolutely. But, but would you agree that American people do seem to be really unraveling right now in a way that is more intense, weird, and scary than usual? Absolutely. Like, this is one of those deals where you can say, uh, oh, this is a process that's always existed and that, you know, the past was absolutely much more weird than we remember it because we only remember its artifacts where they've been turned into a coherent narrative by, like, the dominant structures that have persisted. So we can't live that weirdness. But what we can do now is resonate our weirdness to each other in a way that we never had the capability of doing before, thanks to the good old-fashioned information superhighway. Like, this is a deal where you get an accumulation towards a inflection point, and then things are qualitatively different. Like, they've been, the, there's, there's been a quantum vaulting into, like, a new world, like a new reality that makes the past a totally foreign country, basically. We can date the origins of this moment back to different points in time, depending on the story we're trying to tell. But most proximately, 2008 really looms large. It was the contradictions of the financialized housing system that blew up the entire economy and then, of course, went on to blow up the entire political system and Americans' attachment to that system. But I think a lot of liberals are still committed to seeing Trump's election as the year zero for, for the end of America as as we once knew it. Right. What, what by contrast, is revealed if we zoom out you know, and we, we're going to zoom out a little more like deeper into American and global history later. But if we zoom out just a little bit more to 2008, why why was that crisis so permanently calamitous? Well, because it was the point when the final promise that had been given to the uh, American common person, like we can't even use class things because the point of America is to obliterate class as a lived condition, which it did. So we could talk about class in an American context, but that's not describing its lived experience. So we're just, we're the people. This idea that was not, you could not sustain in Europe, cheek to jowl in those little principalities where land was at a premium. You could sustain that fantasy, that fiction, that social belief in America. So we did, they did create a civic citizenry in a way that uh, more, the, the, the greater, more savage contradictions of European capitalism could not synthesize. So we, we built this system that at the end point of like the final confligatory uh, battle between, you know, uh, reactionary and progressive social forces that uh, was the Second World War, you have the victory in the West by capital, which involves the, the political neutering of a working class that had been a fundamental and, and deciding factor in the creation of this New Deal state that was now capable of winning a world war. And then, you know, becoming a world bestriding economic colossus. It had contributed to that victory because it imagined itself as part of a coalition of forces that would eventually overthrow capitalism. And they were uh, neutralized in America. And that meant, uh, and the mechanisms for that were political, economic, social. And, and one of the chief ones was the creation of a, of a essentially a neo-homestead deal 
where the promise of free land that had sustained that uh, fantasy of citizenship in the 19th century and was no longer sustainable in a fully in a fully capitalized 20th century could be replaced by home ownership. And that deal has run through the entirety, uh, run through American history unchanged because as shocks accumulate and you get the, the crisis of the 70s, the, you know, the broader Keynesian deal between labor and capital was changed and the working class was neutered politically. And that uh, had negative effects on the working class broadly. Those effects were uh, concentrated away from political power. The people who were least politically powerful in this country were the ones who suffered the most dramatic and drastic loss of livelihood. The people who were kind of buffeted from the worst of it were the people who had gotten homes out of that deal. And that, but now with the promise of upward advancement through labor, you know, wages going away, the idea of uh, generational wealth could only be accumulated by using this, this asset that you have. And this asset ends up financing lifestyles of accumulation and consumption and status seeking that give life meaning, you know, that give you a direction and that give you a generational project, making it so that my kid can live like this, all that stuff. It's all premised on this inflating asset. And in 2008, it finally popped, finally, finally. And the new deal that came on top of that, the, the new uh, arrangement of forces was the final extinguishment of that dream for any regular person. And that meant that millions and millions of uh, generally white people who had been ideologically adhered to the American project as understood in the organs of the mainstream culture is almost overnight alienated from it. Because now the, the, their commitment to uh, the American project, connection to their well-being has been severed. Their well-being now comes at the expense of America, at least the way they understand it. Uh, and that means that uh, politics just almost overnight collapses away from these relatively stable polarities of acceptable ideas and discourse that had governed the center until that point. Well, Matt Chrisman, thanks very much. Yes, thank you for having me. for listening to this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. If you're interested in more labor-related podcasts, check out our website at laborradionetwork.org or use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And while you're there, hit that follow button on Twitter and Instagram at laborradionet. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was an international effort this week with Patrick Dixon editing in England and Chris Garlick producing all the way in Colorado. As always, we are promoted by our social media guru, Harold Phillips, and the Great Northwest. That's it for me and the weekly team. Have a safe and happy weekend, and we'll see you next week.